Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Janet W. Hardy. I have no physical coordination whatsoever. I'm not the person you want to have a knife in your snatch. (laughs) That and more. But before that, do you want a New Year's resolution that you can easily keep? You can promise to stop going to the post office to send letters and packages because stamps.com brings all the amazing services of the post office right to your computer. Stamps.com is so much faster and more convenient as a way to get your postage. You can print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package, any class of mail, anywhere you want to send, and then the mail carrier picks it up. No more you know, waiting in lines and making special trips to the post office. It's a real no-brainer. We have used Stamps.com at risk and at our school, the Story Studio, and we can't imagine living without it now. With Stamps.com, you can also get discounted postage rates that you can't even get at the post office, not to mention it's a fraction of the cost of those expensive postage meters. There's no equipment to lease. There's no long-term commitments. And right now, you too can enjoy the Stamps.com service with a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus postage and the digital scale. So start the new year off right, go to stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in risk. That's stamps.com, enter risk. Now here's the show. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Theon Cross behind me now. And we are calling this week's episode Winging It. Uh, Three different situations that required some heavy-duty improvisation. I am improvising right now myself because my laptop broke. Last week, my phone is also acting up, so I'm using this old laptop, which creates the loudest fucking fan noise you've ever heard. I'll tell you, the struggle to get clean quality audio (laughs) in this line of work is never done. (laughs) There is never not waterfalls of noise surrounding me. From the north and the south and the east and the west. After all these years, the standard of audio quality that I finally settled on is as long as you can make out what words I'm saying. In a little bit, we're going to hear from someone who is an American treasure, Janet W. Hardy, who is the co-author of so many crucial books for the kink community and just the wider, you know, sexual revolution. She's the co-author, for example, of the book, The Ethical Slut, 
along with Dossie Eastman. Anyway, we'll have Janet on the show for the very first time in just a little bit. But before that, we're going to hear once again from a very dear friend of mine going way back, a fellow member of the state and a regular on the show. People always love when Ben shows up. Here right now is Ben Garant with a story that we call Don't Buy from the Driver. Luck. Um, I, I, I believe in luck. I think that anybody who has a good life is lucky. They got lucky at some point. And presumably, uh, anybody with a horrible life, too, ran into bad luck. I, I think that anyone who is happy and successful who says luck played no part of it, that it was them and hard work and blah, blah, blah. And, and I never got lucky. I think they're full of shit. I think that uh, you get lucky. Some, I, I believe in luck. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm a screenwriter. I, I, I do okay at that. Uh, and I live in Los Angeles. And, I, and I'm lucky as shit to be where I am. I am from a very small town in Tennessee, and uh, I wanted to get out of Tennessee from the age of, of about 14. I wanted to just get out of fucking Tennessee. Tennessee was terrible. So I uh, worked hard and got good grades. I knew I had to do that. And I went to New York. I wanted to be in New York. I didn't have a plan beyond that. I wanted to be in New York. I didn't want to be a writer. I didn't want to be a sketch comedian. My plan was to be in New York City because that's where the bands I was listening to were from, and that's where John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd were, and I wanted to be there. Uh, And so I saw American Werewolf in London, and the guy, David Naughton, who turns into the werewolf, wears an NYU t-shirt, and at some point he has uh, sex with a fantastic nurse, and then the next time you see the nurse, she's just wearing the NYU t-shirt, and so I said, NYU. That must, like, that, that must be in New York. And so that was the only school I applied to. Uh, I had no backup plan, and I got in, and then I made it to New York, And within two weeks, I met the state, this group of 11 people my own age who were all alpha males and smart and hardworking and talented, and we all responded to a flyer that a sophomore put up, uh, do you want to start a new sketch group? And amongst that group, it was Joe Latruglio on on Brooklyn Nine-Nine and David Wayne and Ken Marino and Michael Black and all these guys who were all obsessed with... Uh, Saturday Night Live and Monty Python and, and all incredibly driven and incredibly hardworking and incredibly disciplined. And the fact that we all ended up in a room together is luck. That's luck. That's crazy luck. I think all of us got crazy lucky that we all met each other at the right time because we all added ingredients to this thing then that I don't think any of us would be where we are without that. I, I'm hardworking as, as I'm super hardworking. 
And, and I, at the time, obsessed with comedy, obsessed with it, crazy obsessed with comedy, but not ambitious at all. I, I had no, I'm not an alpha male in any way. Um, I just, and not ambitious. I just liked comedy and didn't know what I want to do. And I fell in with David Wayne and these super ambitious guys and pretended I was an alpha male too with these guys. Yeah, we're all alpha males. Let's do it. And, and, and the, the fact that we all met, luck luck like if i didn't see that sign that flyer that todd holabek put up i wouldn't be here i don't know where i would be um and i think that's true with all of us in the group so i think you have to uh play your luck i don't think you can be there with just luck you also have to work hard and and, and i think that you could probably turn bad luck around if you do things right but luck was is, is it's why i'm here um and so uh beowulf jones who was the the coolest name in the world. Um, it's the name of a great action hero from a terrible action movie. <laughs> uh, but he said luck, and so I thought, well, do I have bad luck too? I have good luck. I know I have good luck, and I've, I've hit it in my life, and I look at luck as past tense, just looking back and said, well, that was lucky. I don't think you can make yourself look for luck. And I have terrible luck at parties terrible luck at parties looking backwards at my life and I think part of that is I think you create it a little bit because I'm a I'm a textbook introvert I I know what I up here I'm talking to you and I know exactly what I'm supposed to be doing I'm supposed to be telling a story so I can do it I can talk to all of you guys uh but one-on-one -on -one, I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing I, I don't know how to talk as an individual to to people I don't know what the goal is I, I don't know what I'm supposed to be am I supposed to be funny am I supposed to be interesting I, I don't know what I'm supposed to do I, I'm happily married so I'm not supposed to pick up a girl so what am I why am I here at this thing talking to you uh and and, and that's that's introvert like a normal people love it. They love being around parties and they get energy from other people. Introverts, it, it takes a huge amount of energy. I dread parties. I dread. And, and when I leave them, I'm exhausted. And I'm, I, I have tremendous anxiety going to a party, even if it's just friends, I, I, just because I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I don't know small talk. I don't know how to do that. Uh, and so I bring this bad look upon myself, I think, for parties. One of my first memories is my fourth birthday at Dipper Dan's ice cream, being pinned to the ground in front of my throne, being punched in the face by Mikey And I remember it like there. That's not bad luck. That's just childhood. That happens to everybody. Um, but I have tremendous bad luck at parties. And, and, and some of it was brought on myself, and some of it is just luck. Two weeks ago, on November 4th, we had a party for my five-year-old, Abby. Uh, and, and we've had a lot of little parties for her every birthday, but it's just family and friends and just a few people, but now she's in preschool, and so you, she wants to invite all her friends from preschool, and so we had a party for her at the zoo. Uh, she loves the zoo. We go to the zoo all the time, and so it was uh, like 21 children, 50 people, at the birthday party at the zoo, and you get a little pavilion right next to the carousel, and they brought a fucking porcupine, and they answer questions about the porcupine. It was great. And I was very nervous and excited, uh, and not really thinking about the bad luck I have at parties, which I, I have. So we were there, and uh, Abby is, is having fun, and the kids are starting to show up, and everybody's having a good time, and the porcupine is there, and the kids don't give a shit about the porcupine, because they're playing with the plates that are paper, and they're rolling them up and, and looking at them, and I'm like, fuck, the porcupine was 200 bucks, but great. <laughs> um, and 
and it's great. And, and, and she's not pinned to the floor being punched, and so it's success. Uh, and then my parents show up later with my one-year-old, Donnie, and so I run down the hill to go walk them up. We have this great stroller that's got a skateboard on it so that Abby, the five-year-old, can Marty McFly it behind the, the stroller as we go, and she loves it. And we run into another a parent from our school who her little girl is riding a skateboard, and she's never done that before, and she's psyched, and we're heading up the hill to the party and talking about dinosaurs with this little girl, and it's just great. The weather's great and um halfway up the hill donnie starts just blah, like barfing barfing uh on my on me on my crotch and it's like this bazooka barf all down him covers him covers my crotch uh just covered with barf uh and i've I, and i and you're a parent so you see a lot of barf this is the most barf i've ever seen it was it was a bad barf uh, and so as, as my crotch gets covered with barf, and I'm thinking, oh, God, please, you didn't cover this other little girl in the skateboard with barf, did you? And I look, and the little girl's fine. She's fine. No barf on, on this little girl. And so that mom swept her away, and we start coordinating with my, with my wife, and we, and we start trying to get the, my Donnie cleaned up. Uh, and we take him over to the party, and he keeps barfing, and she takes him away, and I keep entertaining, and then I take my my shirt and I do this uh, like and so I'm covered with barf but my shirt is covering my barf and I feel like this I feel like I did this in my 20s a few times probably I feel like this is a drink uh, trick from my my alcoholic days in New York Um, so you know I smell bad but it's the zoo so that's okay Um, (laughs) my wife takes Donnie home and I finish the party and Abby has a great time and we get home, we call the doctor, and the doctor says, well, no fever, no diarrhea, and barfing. Bring him to Children's Hospital if he's still barfing in an hour. And we, at the end of the day, are at Children's Hospital for nine hours uh, in the emergency room. And they do a full sonogram on him, and it's, not, it's food poisoning or there's a fancy technical term, but like little babies, sometimes their intestines will get like telescoped in where they won't, they get clogged, they fold and they, and food won't go in. So it all comes out. And if you do that, like you got to do a big thing. And, uh, and the baby's miserable and we're, there's a curtain separating us from a kid with three broken fingers at 11 at night. And, and the, my kid is screaming and it's daylight savings time. And so I look at the clock and it's 2.15 and the kid is screaming and everything and we go through this whole thing and then I look back at the clock and it's 2.10. (laughs) And so it's this horrible, horrible night. He's fine. He's fine. Uh, They do an air enema. That sounds fun. Uh, To get rid of this kink in the the intestines. and he's okay. The guy got okay in two days. So that was the last party I threw. Um, the, that was not the worst party I threw. The worst party I threw was my best friend Tom Lennon's bachelor party. Um, and this was, geez, 15, 15 to 20 years ago, I guess. 
and he's my best friend. It, 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 for Reno 911, he's the guy with the shorts. He's, he's in everything. He's great. Like, and, and I've, I've met him in 1988, and he had an eye patch, and I had a mohawk, and, and we were terrified of each other. And, and we've become writing partners, and, and, he's, and, and we, I love him. He's the greatest guy in the world. And so I was his best man. And when he said, and a best man, I was like, great. Oh, my God, I'm going to nail the speech. The speech is going to be so good. And then it, I realized, oh, fuck, I got to throw the party, too. And, like, I'm not a bachelor party guy, um, which is okay, because we're all theater people and writers, and so none of us are, like, bachelor party guys. Um, but we, uh, so I, we were going to go to Vegas, and I rented, like, a party bus uh, and got us 30 hits of fantastic late 90s ecstasy, like, great ecstasy. Um it was in waves, so we would take the, this party bus thing, and we would go and take, his dad came with us, and some older guys, and we would go have steaks, and then we would drop them off, and then go and just be Pied Pipers of ecstasy in Las Vegas. Uh, and his wife said, no strip clubs, and so I respected that. And everybody else in the bachelor party was like, you're making a big mistake with the no strip clubs thing, and I, but I committed to it, and it was going to be great. So five or six of us people got, uh, got five or six of us, 20 guys, uh, five or six of us got there the night before, and we thought, let's try the ecstasy. And so we, you know, we each did a hit, and it was the greatest night in the world. We walked around Vegas and just were talking about how much we love each other and listening to music and like karaoke, and people won at blackjack, and it was great. It was like this great, 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 great night. Uh, next day, for the actual bachelor party, everybody comes in, everybody's there, one of us took the good ecstasy, of which we had 24 hits left, and hid it while they were on ecstasy. Um, and so when the party came around, it could not be found. It was to hide it from the maids, theoretically. Um, I'm not sure, um, but it, we, it could not be found. So we went off and we had steak, and everybody was still in a little tweaky because none of us really slept the night before, so everybody's a little bit like fried and you know, not, not, not feeling 100%, but, but put on a brave face, and we went out. And we did the worst thing in the world, which is we bought drugs from the limo driver. Um, and they weren't cheap, and they were not ecstasy. We, we said, can we get ecstasy from you? And he was like, yeah, okay, we'll do that, yes. And so we got, we got these things, and they did not look like ecstasy. They, they, were, they looked like baby aspirin, but they were red. And we all said, sure, I'm sure this is some form of ecstasy. Uh, and we all took them. And I've done meth once. When meth, when meth first came out, I did meth. I went to a Mets game, and afterwards, I did meth. You know, uh, and, and, and it was, and meth, meth, it, it gets a bad rap, but if you have self-control, <laughs> meth, 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 you feel like Superman for 12 minutes, and then you need more meth, uh, and, and, and so it's awful, uh, and then you can't sleep for two days, uh, and, and that's meth. So this was m not meth. It was mostly meth, but it was not all meth, because on meth, you don't see trails. And on this stuff, you saw trails. So we all took it, and then the next 48 hours, I remember in, in like, like Jacob's Ladder. Like, I remember parts of it. 
I remember um, we all took it. I remember that we went to this place called Dre's, which was in the basement of the old Riviera, which, thank God, I don't think he's even there anymore. And it's a place where you go to be totally fucked up on drugs all night. And they wouldn't let most of us in. So I don't know how fucked up we were, but I know that half of the party, they said, you're too fucked up to be in this basement doing cocaine. (laughs) um, And so half of us presumably walked around Riviera, like walked around, like... uh, And I don't remember much about Dre's. I remember that when we gave our credit card, they also made us, Tom and I both, put our thumbprint down to make sure that they proved that this was us using the credit card. Everybody was supposed to leave town the next day, check out at 11, and then leave. Every single person in our party canceled their flight and took another night, stayed there another night, because people just couldn't do it. People couldn't get on the plane. Uh, Everybody had their shoulders like this, and everybody was freaking out. And so we all gradually gathered in in a room in the dark with the shades pulled, and more of us would show up, and we, oh, sit. And we would sit in silence in this room uh, during the whole next day. Uh, I remember when Michael Ian Black, do you know Michael Ian Black? Yeah, Michael Ian Black showed up late and to this room, and Michael Ian Black did a 45-minute explain to us how everybody the night before was, it was a conspiracy. It was a, like, every, okay, so the first guy, we asked, where, how, how do you get to Dre's? And the first guy didn't know how to get to Dre's. But then the next guy did know how we get to Dre's. How did he know we were trying to look for Dre's? It was because the first guy told him, and so we went into Dre's. And there were those two girls in the corner who never talked to us. That's because the people who were sitting right next to us knew that these girls told them not to talk to us, and it was 45 minutes. It was like a 45-minute pacing, explaining the night to us. And we all sat there and shivered. Uh... <laughs> And, I know, and, and the other thing I remember is that at one point poured himself a bath and he got down on his knees in front of the bath and put his hands together and said, God, don't let water be creepy. And people gradually started going home after the second day. I, I know that the next day, walking around, I was starting to feel like, okay, I'm all right. I can get on a plane. I'm, we're okay. We're, we're, we're pulling it together. And one of our parties said, is the road lava? And I realized, no, we're, we're not okay. We're not, we're not fine. And, and I was still seeing trails 47 hours later, uh, having a glass of wine at some place, and I could still see full trails. So I don't know what it was. Uh, And at that point, I swore never again. And as an adult, I'm I'm like, I'm a 47-year-old man. It's the biggest failure of my life. (laughs) Who was that party? And it's funny now, but it was a long two days, and it was awful, and it should have been so much fun. So my son bazooka barfed for his older sister's uh, uh, fifth birthday party. His first birthday party, uh, my wife is Korean, and the, the one year is a big deal. Uh, the, when you turn one year, they have a one year celebration, and it's a like big mojo. And like the kid 
you put stuff down in front of them. You put a gavel and a and a money and a, a, a stethoscope. And he whatever he grabs, this is that's his life. And everybody goes, yay! Um, we did it for Abby, my five year old, and my my mother in law kept doing it until he picked money. They're like, no, 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 that that one didn't count for some reason. Like, let's do it again. Um, and so it was a big deal. And uh, two days before his one year, he got uh, foot and mouth disease. Uh, tons of spots and, and, and fever and everything. So my, my son is two for two <laughs> with, with parties. Uh, so I think maybe he's gotten my bad luck with parties. Maybe. But we'll work through it. And I'm okay with that. Because my luck elsewhere has been very, very, very good. So I'm fine. Thank you. God, don't let water be creepy. The first thing I want you to know about my co-author, friend, co-collaborator, lover, etc., Dossie Easton, is that almost since the first day of our 25-year relationship, we have been doing outrageous role-playing. It's what we do. It's how we roll. <laughs> the second thing I want you to know about Dossie is that when you do an erotic role play with Dossie, it starts in her clothing closet. Because she's a high femme and that's the way she rolls. <laughs> so, the story starts in Dossie's clothing closet, where we're doing sort of this playing Barbies thing that she likes to do, where she takes out an outfit and tries it on, and you tell her how wonderful she looks, and she puts it away and <laughs> tries on another outfit. And we eventually narrow it down to the prom gowns, now, I want you to notice that that is plural, <laughs> as is tiaras. <laughs> the prom gown we decide we like is pink. It, it's not exactly the one Glinda the Good Witch wore, but it's, it's within spitting distance of Glinda the Good Witch. It's pink with an enormous tulle skirt, many layers, uh, very dossy, and a tiara, of course. And the reason we're doing this is because we have a play party coming up the following weekend, and we're in the mood for something a little chewy in the way of a role play. Um, and so what we decide on is that she will be the prom queen. And part of what makes that wonderful is that neither of us is the kind of woman who ever got to be the prom queen. 
Um, so for this time, she gets to be the prom queen, and I get to help her be the prom queen. And okay, well, what, where does that leave me? I do not do prom queen. <laughs> this is as femme as it gets. I'm sorry. Um, so I'm going to be the juvenile delinquent. who kidnaps her from the prom at at knife point and beats her and rapes her. So we're at the party. Fast forward, you know, it's Saturday night. We're at the party. We've chatted. We've nibbled. We've done the things you do at the play party before anything happens. And then she's in using the bathroom. And I decide to wait behind the bathroom door. And in my hand, I have... Um, a knife, a very vicious looking knife. Now the thing about this knife, it's a wonderful toy because you could probably cut butter with it, but you couldn't cut hamburger with it. There is no fucking edge to this knife at all, but it looks vicious. So when she steps out and I put it to her throat, she doesn't know there's no edge to it. It feels like a knife. It's metal. And I step up behind her and snarl in her ear, don't you fucking move, bitch. And I could see the goosebumps come up (laughs) in the parts of her that are not covered with pink taffeta. Um, (laughs) And I take her downstairs to where the dungeon is and strap her down and throw all the layers of pink back up over her head so she can't see. And there's a couple reasons for that. One of them is because, you know, while she's inside all the pink, she's imagining whatever makes the fantasy work for her, uh, like a blindfold except pink. Um, And the the other reason is that one of the things we've negotiated as part of this scene is she wants to have her panties cut off. I should note here that there is a drawer at Dossie's house full of black lace panties that are cheap and for cutting off purposes. (laughs) Once again, I remind you, this knife has no edge. Hence the binding, because what I have to do is get out my paramedic shears. Because like, like all good perverts, I carry paramedic shears in case someone has, has to get cut off. Uh, and she can't tell because she's tied down and she can't see. So moving forward, I, I start with some biting because there's very biteable bits. And I cut the panties off. And... Oh, God. I, you know, it was that kind of a scene. I think I caned her. I don't know where a juvenile delinquent is supposed to get a cane, but I have one, and I caned her. Um, and I put clamps on, and I took clamps off, and she was screaming and sobbing and having a high old time, and so was I. Uh, we found out later that people at the party were whispering that I had actually fucked her with the knife. I did not actually fuck her with the knife. There are people in the world who know how to do that. There's a reason why I carry only a very blunt knife. I have no physical coordination whatsoever. I'm not the person you want to have a knife in your snatch. So. (laughs) But it looks like the kind of scene where I was going to fuck her with the knife. But the thing that happened for me as I was having a good old time is I started to hear things come out of my mouth that I didn't know I had in my head. The kinds of things that a truly bad person would say. Things like, I'm going to show dirty little bitches like you what you're good for. You're only good to be fucked and thrown away. You know, 
I don't have to go and do the whole line of pattern. I don't want to because that's not a part of me I'm real comfortable with. Um, but in the context of the scene, a funny thing happens when you're topping that kind of scene because there's part of you that's right in there saying your lines, saying your patter, and it's part of you. You wouldn't be able to do it if it weren't part of you, if there weren't that angry, hateful, vengeful, predatory part of you, you wouldn't be able to say those things. But at the same time, there's the part of you that's standing back going, okay, if you turn her that way, you're going to mess with her neck, and you know her neck is fragile, so you can't do that. And so there, I had this sort of dual consciousness going on as it was going. But I had never heard myself say things like that. I didn't know I had that person inside me. So this other kind and sane and consensual person is standing there going, what the holy fuck is going on here? Um, But it all worked. It all worked. We both had a great time. So, you know, we finished the scene. I got her off. I got myself off. I I fucked her with a a strap on, of course, because you would have to, because you're a driven delinquent. Um, (laughs) And so we both got off, and I held her and brought her back down, and she held me and It was all cuddly and good, and we swept all the toys into the toy bag, and we went to go back upstairs to where the food was. And, (laughs) come on, after that you need food. Um, At the bottom of the stairs, I was, you know, juvenile delinquent. I was with the strut and with the boots and with the dick. And by the time I got to the top of the stairs, my hands were just shaking and it was the aftershocks of the scene hitting me what the fuck just happened who was that who said those things and we went into the food room and she plopped down on the couch with these yards of pink just spreading around her and I sat down in the middle of all that pink and leaned back against her knees and said would you just pet me please And so she did. I hadn't bothered to put my shirt back on because I don't like shirts. Um, So she she petted my head. My hair was all slicked back because I was a juvenile delinquent. So she, she petted my head and she rubbed my shoulders and she smoothed me down. And I waited. I felt like crying, but she was taking good care of me, so I didn't cry. But I waited until I was a little bit less shaky. She fed me. I I was kind of okay. And I was able to drive home. By the time I drove home, all I wanted to do was call her and say, are we okay? I didn't, because it was late and she had a long way to drive. But the next morning, you bet your ass I was on the telephone, um, going, are we okay? Yeah, of course we're okay, she says. "Um, Why why shouldn't we be okay? Well, I don't know. That was really scary last night, and I think I need to know that you still like me. Um, And she said, of course I like you. When can we do it again? (laughs) But that persona, and he's reemerged. I tell people I have multiple male top personae, and they all belong in a state hospital for the incriminally insane. Um, He's come back, and he would come back more often if Dossie wanted. But... Or, you know, it, actually, if she had her way, he would be back all the time. Um, but for me, it was this 
journey into this darkness inside me, this shadow of cruelty and anger and sadism and a rage that, you know, it's not the kind of thing that you want to know about yourself. But I just put it out there for for me to learn. And so I think the reason I wanted to to tell this story tonight is because the aftermath, I'm a switch. And what I learned is that when you ask someone to go into that dark space, which we do when we play with that kind of thing, or even if we're not doing overt role-playing, we go into that, that darkness that might be the toppy darkness of cruelty and anger and predatoriness and whatever, and it might be the bottom space of tininess and helplessness and the pain that we hold from being tiny and helpless. Those are big asks. Those are big things to ask somebody. And we need to acknowledge that vulnerability. And we need to take good care of ourselves and the people we love when we do things like that. And that's why I chose to tell that story. This is Risk. This is Fiona Apple behind me now. And we just heard from the one and only Janet W. Hardy. Uh, You can find her at JanetWHardy.com. But also, please go to Amazon or wherever you get your books and look up all that she has written. By the way, that was recorded at the Mystery Box, which is one of our favorite storytelling shows in the country. That's in Portland. We've featured many stories that were originally shared at the Mystery Box on the show. And we're hoping to do a show with them around about September, like we sometimes do shows with body storytelling from San Francisco. Our final story on this week's episode comes to us from a dear friend and a most talented lady, Jude Trader Wolf. You should look her up at mashupstoriesintosong.com. That's Jude's latest storytelling project she's doing here in New York City. Here she is now with a story we call 
The Trap. impression of my boss Barry is that he looks like a linebacker in a lab coat. He's about 5'6", built like a tank, but he has the warmth and the personality of a John Candy in a lab coat. And he hires me for my first professional job to be a creative arts therapist on a psych unit in a hospital in New Jersey. And I am so grateful because it's 1982 and jobs in, in healthcare and the arts are just disappearing. And I know that I'm really lucky to get one of them. And he is so excited to, for me to meet the staff and talks me up and how happy he is to have music and art on the unit. I meet the chief of psychiatry, Dr. Simon, who is a tall, uh, skinny, very aloof, almost the opposite of Barry, kind of a Clive Owen in a lab coat kind of guy. Gives me a little tip of his hat. And then Barry gives me a key to his office. And he says, now look, this is the Motel 6 of offices. But he is really proud of it. And he says, you're going to need some space to, for, your, your, for your supplies. And you need some, uh, some privacy up here. And I'm really happy to share this uh, little office with you. So I am off to a really great start. So every morning, I, I zoom in there. And I fill this backpack with art supplies and notebooks and pens and music sheets and grab my guitar and go out to do this very intense day of work with patients on, on the psych unit and Barry will be sitting there smoking and he might say, oh, they're, they're looking to cut the budget again. Uh, help me come up with an argument so they don't cut psychiatry. Or he might say, you wouldn't believe the meeting I was just at. Heads are going to roll. Or he might say, my wife thinks I'm too hard on my stepson. What do you think? And Everybody on the unit loves him, and I know that he could be talking to any of those people, so I love that he wants to confide in me, and I feel special, and we're getting closer. So about a month into the job, he says, look, how about if you come out, meet my wife and my stepson, bring your guitar, and if you and the kid hit it off, you can teach him guitar privately. I play guitar too, this way he and I would have something in common, but I can't teach him because all we do is fight. So the following Thursday night, I drive up to the, the woods in the suburban woods of Montclair, uh, New Jersey. It's about 7.30 at night, an autumn night, and I arrive, and Barry meets me at the door, and he's holding a guitar, and he's playing the guitar, and he's doing these amazing Spanish guitar riffs up and down the neck, just staring at me. And he backs up, and I follow him into the living room, and. He continues playing this guitar, and I see a fire in the fireplace, and a bottle of wine on the table, and two glasses, and two settings, and the smell of lasagnas wafting through the air. And I look at him, and he's still seductively fingering the neck of this guitar. <laughs> and he says, what do you think? And I say, "I." Your wife and your son couldn't make it? And he says, oh, come on. You knew what this was. Come on. 
They're not going to be back until Sunday, and I gave you a personal day for tomorrow, so we've got three full days together. And now my uh, one confusion, anxiety, has now turned to awkwardness because um, I, there's not one molecule of my body that is attracted to this guy. So now I also don't want to hurt my boss's feelings. So I say, I don't think that would be good for our working relationship. And then he, the shadow comes over his eyes. He's still grinning, but now it's a Jack Nicholson shining kind of grin. <laughs> and he says... Oh, come on. You don't think I hired you right out of your internship because I thought you were the best person for this job. I hired you because of your pretty green eyes. And with that, I, I, inside I'm thinking, I must have misunderstood. I must have misunderstood. And I keep saying, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I have to go. I really have to get up early. I have to go. And I pick up my guitar and I leave. And as I drive away, I see his face framed in the doorway with a look of stone-cold anger. Now, the next morning, I get to work at 7.30 because my plan is to get all of my gear out of that office so I, don't, I can avoid him for the entire day and the rest of my life. Um, and, of course, I, so I have my art supplies, my guitar, and I open the door, and Barry's standing on the other side. And I panic, and, and, and my heart is pounding, and my face gets hot, and... He says, you're no fun at all. You're a workaholic. And I don't know what to say. I'm paralyzed. And I look down and I mumble something like, uh, I have to go set up the group. And I step into the doorway. And as I do, he steps into the doorway. So the entire bulk of his linebacker body is pressed up against every inch of my body. And as I squeeze past him, I'm thinking, I'm going to spend every day for the rest of the time that I work here trying to avoid moments like this. So every morning I get used to this feeling of dread and anxiety as I turn the key to go to this office because I know what's on the other side every day after this is an icy hostility. Sometimes he's playing my guitar and I need it for group and I meekly and weakly say, oh, I need my guitar, excuse me, um, to do my job. And he just ignores me like I'm not even there. Sometimes I'm getting my supplies and he'll just come up right behind me, like right, press his body up right behind me. And so I have to navigate getting around him and then he'll jump into the doorway so I have to squeeze past him. But out on the floor with everybody else, he's everybody's favorite guy. And I don't know who I can even talk to about this. I'm dating a guy at the time and I tell him about it and he says, well, he didn't rape you. Wow. How, I mean, how bad is this guy, anyway? And I'm thinking, well, he didn't. I mean, maybe he doesn't want to assault me. Maybe he just likes making me uncomfortable. And I don't know who, to, who is safe to talk to about it, but I, the one place where I'm open is this psychodrama training group that I'm in, where we use um, scene setting and role playing and theatrical techniques to explore issues and problems. And in there, I tell them everything, and I keep doing these scenes over and over in there where uh, Barry does one of these, making me terribly uncomfortable and, 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 and sexually uh, uh, aggressive moves, and I just am paralyzed. I can't speak up even in these role plays that are completely fake. I can't speak up. And I say to my group, look, what I need from you guys is to just help me get through this, to stick this out for another six months so I can be here a year and then I can get a better job somewhere. And there's a guy in the group that reminds me of Dr. Simon, and he says, well, that's not going to work. 
because you'll need Barry's reference. So what you have to do is get, you gotta get in with Dr. Simon. That's what you have to do. So I start doing these role plays with this guy as Dr. Simon, and I vent all of what's happened and tell him the whole story. And in one scenario, doc, it's like in Rosemary's Baby, where she goes to the doctor and she tells the doctor everything, and it turns out he's in the coven, and everybody's in on it, and she's completely trapped. Um, and another version of it, um, uh, Dr. Uh, Simon says, this is impossible. Barry would never do something like this. Or I imagine he might say, okay, I believe you, but there's nothing I can do. I don't want to bring negative attention to psychiatry. And as I'm working through this, trying to find some kind of script that I can bring to Dr. Simon and speak up for myself, there's a day when I'm always looking over my shoulder. I always know where Barry is. It's a very Barry-centric uh, life that I have on the unit when other people are around, and I try to keep somebody between us at all times. But one day, I just don't manage to do that. I'm on my way to do a presentation, and he comes up behind me, very stealth. He does one of these stealth moves, and he grabs my butt, and he says, I know a nice piece of ass when I see one. And I'm about to do a presentation, and then for the first time, I feel angry. And I call Dr. Simon and say, I'd like to talk to you. Dr. Simon invites me to his office, which for the first time I've been working here for seven months, I find out is in an entirely different part of the hospital. And you know in The Wizard of Oz, there's the black and white Kansas, and there's Oz that is all colorful? Well, the psych unit is Kansas, and where his office is gorgeous, it's palatial, it's spacious. I didn't know this even existed. Floor-to-ceiling bookshelves, leather couches that smell like new car and entitlement. And... <laughs> and a desk that's the size of the Titanic. So he, with this aloof manner, is on the other side of this desk, and I feel even more small and insignificant. And, and, I'm try and I start by saying, I think Barry wants me to quit, or he wants to fire me. And Dr. Simon says, I hear good things. And I say, um, okay. You know, well, sometimes I come into the office and he's playing my guitar and he won't give it to me. And, and I, as I'm saying this, I'm just, I'm just falling apart realizing I feel like a middle schooler writing out a high school senior to the school principal. And I, I, I finally get out, I say, he grabbed my butt and he said, I know a nice piece of ass when I see one. And Dr. Simon, again, inscrutable, aloof, and he says, well, let me look into it. So I leave and I feel defeated. I don't know, I don't believe that anything is going to happen. I can't read in his mind. So the next morning, the usual, I get all my gear early in the morning, open the door, there's Barry on the other side of the door. I step into the doorway, he does the usual, getting, jump in the doorway so I have to squeeze past him. And I look up and there's Dr. Simon walking down the hall. And the three of us freeze. It's a slow-mo moment. <laughs> And no one says anything. I continue on to do my job. And Dr. Simon continues into our space, the office. That's a Friday morning. Monday comes. I have the usual dread, the usual Barry-centric, where is he? I've got to keep somebody between him and me. And he's not around. Tuesday comes. He's not around. By Wednesday, I say to the one of the nurses, is Barry on vacation? Is he sick? Something happened? And she says, oh, you didn't hear? Dr. Simon transferred him. He's been transferred to the ER, 
The psych ER, he works 5 a.m. to 5 p.m. And what I know is I know where this guy lives, that he has to get up at insane o'clock in the morning to be there at 5 a.m. and do his psych ER uh, uh, rotations. This is a huge demotion for him. He's lost all of his status. Nobody told me about it, but now I know. And I go to the office that we did share, and I sit there and I think, I still feel terrible that I never stood up for myself, that I couldn't find the words, I couldn't find the strength. But I know I've learned a lot. I, I, I know that um, I'm, I've wised up that people can be very different people in private and in public. And I never stopped looking over my shoulder ever since then. I, I really did wise up. And try to look behind the mask of people more than I ever did before I met Barry. Now, over the years, this was a long time ago, I've worked with hundreds and hundreds of not only women, lots of people that were paralyzed in that same way, trying to uh, deal with a situation and afraid to speak up because they might risk their job or their security or their safety if they said something and upset somebody that was in power that wasn't treating them in the right way. And so it's a struggle, and I know that struggle. And while I'm listening to people work it out, I'm thinking, I get it. Me too. That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Radiohead behind me now, and we just heard from Jude Trader Wolf. Now, don't forget, you can always find new information about where the next Risk Live shows are happening at risk-show.com slash tour. Don't forget to also look up our school at thestorystudio.org. All kinds of workshops 
including one-on-one training over Skype and, you know, our video workshops, our in-person workshops, and, of course, our corporate workshops at thestorystudio.org. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Do you make a plan? No, you're winging it there off.